Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, September 7th, we are studying Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 3. The great day of the Lord is near, Zephaniah proclaims, and no one will escape. The only response is to repent, to seek the Lord, to plead for his mercy from his anger. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, thanks so much. I'm always happy to be here. How is Minnesota this morning, Pastor Boo? Oh, actually, the weather is beautiful. It's just starting to uh, cool down a little bit from the hot summers, and we're in that short period where the weather is just perfect before it starts to turn cold. Fantastic. Well, you, you enjoy that. We're we're still dealing with a little bit of heat in Texas ourselves, so you, you enjoy that weather. And when it comes to be October, November, and we've got that weather and you're colder, we'll, we'll talk again. Exactly. So, Pastor Boo, we are in the book of Zephaniah this morning, the second text in this short little book, but packed with lots of stuff. As, as we consider the prophet Zephaniah this morning, particularly the verses we've got for today, what should we know about the prophet, his context, what he said so far leading up to the words we've got for this morning? Well, Zephaniah has a tough job. You know, he is a prophet during a time when the king is trying to reintroduce the proper worship of Yahweh. Josiah is king. Um, he began to be king when he was about eight years old, but as he grew into a mature man, he recognized that all of the horrible pagan practices and the, the departure from Yahweh was so severe in the land that he started this religious reform. And so um, this Baal worship and other idolatrous practices are so widespread that even as the uh, worship of the Lord was being brought back, uh, followed by the discovery, rediscovery of the law and King Josiah's efforts, Zephaniah has this duty to proclaim to people that, uh, that they need to return to the Lord, and he is dealing with a licentious and wicked group of people. People who have not only forgotten the Lord, but even as the Lord is brought back into their memory, they just start combining the Lord with their pagan practices. So he has a lot to say about the impending judgment from God. And we know that the judgment will take place um, as the Babylonians lead them into exile. But then we also see that Zephaniah's prophecy about the coming judgment also applies to the future. It applies to all mankind and the return of the Lord, the so-called day of the Lord. And so uh, that's where we're at. Zephaniah is warning the people of impending doom. His whole prophecy is pointing to this localized or temporal judgment, but then forward to the end of the world. And while Zephaniah is also focused on God's wrath to come, something that we should take seriously, especially from the description that Zephaniah gives us, as a true prophet, he's naturally 
has this desire and this command of God to point forward to redemption too. He just doesn't give them the law and leave them at it. He prophesies a day of wrath, both for Judah and for the rest of the world, but then he also prophesies salvation for a remnant. Uh, that promise of salvation comes primarily in his last chapter, in chapter 3. But in today's text, we do get a bit of a, a reprieve, or at least we see the the way out of the day of, of the Lord, that repentance is is given as the way forward for the people who face this day of the Lord. But but in general, Zephaniah, what we're going to hear from him today, you, you might consider this really the, the main thesis of what he's got, this great day of the Lord that he preaches. This is his central theme. And it's primarily directed at Judah in today's text. And then in tomorrow's text, he's going to turn and apply it also to the nations as well. So that's where well, exactly. we are. It's, Go ahead. It's split into three parts. You know, he begins by focusing mostly on Judah. But again, of course, it points forward. And then he, as you said, points forward to all nations. And then we come up. But you're right. We have this we have this hint of there are righteous people in this midst. And with the recognition that there are righteous people that will be part of a remnant, there's a call for them to take action. But then there's always buried in that this call that, you know, it's, it's not really too late for you to be part of those righteous people. Well, that's right. Yeah, the, it's not too late. And we're going to hear that particularly in those, those verses in chapter two today, the matter of, you know, before these things happen, right? To, there's a, the day of the Lord is coming, but there's also a day today in which the Lord is coming to you with this message of repentance. So take that opportunity right now to repent, to believe in the Lord. I mean, what, when St. Paul says, and I think it's in second Corinthians, you know, today is the day of salvation. That's, that's going to be on Zephaniah's mind as well. That's why he's preaching ahead of time is so that the people would repent now before this day of the Lord comes. So we are picking up the text in Zephaniah chapter one, beginning at verse 14 and carrying into chapter two this morning. The prophet writes, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Um, the mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's our text for today. That's Zephaniah 1, verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 3. Pastor Boo, Zephaniah gets straight to the point in our text, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. You already touched on this already, but this day of the Lord that Zephaniah preaches, a theme that we see in the prophets as well. What is the day of the Lord? Right. So we have this great day. 
Now, great, is does that mean that it's great in terms of it's going to be fantastic? Well, not from the prophet's description. You know, the prophet says it's near and coming soon, that it's great, great as in momentous, great as in uh, imposing. And But when is it happening, right? It's coming near. Well, like much prophecy, this is proleptic. To, to be proleptic, it simply means that this is pointing forward to a future event. In this case, it's the fall of Judah to Babylon. This is the, the immediate temporal context of what's going on. He's telling these people, in your lifetime, in a very short period of time, you're going to, you are going to experience the wrath and judgment of the Lord. But then that event, which will take place in time, really is just pointing forward to a greater event that will take place later. So that is, prophecy is fulfilled more than once, uh, more than twice sometimes, many times over, and each time pointing forward to its ultimate fulfillment. So in this case, the great day of the Lord immediately refers to the fall of Jerusalem, God's wrath upon the wickedness of these people. It's coming fast, hastening fast. There's the sense of urgency. But then it ultimately refers to Judgment Day, as he will get into in the next section, you know, next time you guys meet. But then he, it ultimately refers to this Judgment Day of God at the end of the world. So we often think, you know, should when we hear things like the Day of the Lord, should we, should we look forward to that? Now, in our sinfulness, in our uh, uh, the recognition that that we can't stand before a holy and just God, our sinful selves really only want to respond no. There's no way that we could stand before the Lord. Our sinful nature should fear the coming of the Lord. And the prophet describes it here as the day being bitter, right? It's a bad time for those who are without God, whose trust has not been in God, those who have abandoned Yahweh and his ways and laws, even to the point where, and I like this, the mighty man cries aloud there. The mighty man in this case is like a, like a hero, a strong person. The, the men to whom most are usually looking to for rescue, well, that guy is just going to be weeping aloud because faced with God's wrath, there's nothing that they can do. Now, nothing that they can do in terms of when he comes. We'll find out that there is, there's grace and hope, but in the stark reality of the law, if you have clung to sin and have rejected God, the day of the Lord is not something to look forward to. I think that that is a striking statement for us as Christians, you know, that, that the day of the Lord here is not something that the people should look forward to. The prophet, prophet Amos says similarly, he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, because it's going to come upon you with judgment. It seems for the, the people of Israel in Amos's day, and then for the people of Judah in Zephaniah's day, they wanted the day of the Lord, thinking that it was going to be a day in which the Lord would vindicate them. That, that he would you know subdue their enemies and and he would show them to be his people but the problem and you pointed this out in your introduction the problem was that they were not living as his people in any respect even with the prophet or excuse me the king Josiah working his reforms these reforms by and large weren't taking hold in the people's hearts and so for them the day of the Lord was going to be a, a day of judgment but 
I think, you know, for us as Christians, we're so accustomed to hearing, you know, thinking about for the book of Revelation that we should pray, come Lord Jesus. And that, you know, we confess in the creed, we're looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. To hear this, this talk of, well, the day of the Lord is going to be a fearful, frightening day. How, how do we hold those two things together as Christians? This, this thought that on the one hand, it, it's going to be terrible. We shouldn't look forward to it. But on the other hand, we're told, pray for it. How do we hold those things together as Christians? Well, it's kind of like the people of this time who, who thought of Yahweh and said, you know, well, he's not going to do anything bad to us, nor is he really going to do anything good to us. They just sort of thought of God as one of many. It kind of reminds me a little bit of my time in Haiti and talking with the people there. They had practiced uh, voodoo, and a lot of them still do to some extent. And when Christian missionaries came, they heard about Jesus, and they took Jesus, and they just put him on the shelf with the rest of their gods. And so now Jesus became just another god to pray to. So when it comes to the world in general, it seems like we've domesticated God, dismissed him to the point where, you know, God's not going to do anything good or bad. He just wants us to be nice to each other and, you know, and the day of the Lord will come and it'll be great. Well, for the Christian, you're right. We recognize that we're eager for the return of the Lord, but we're eager not for the judgment day because Technically, you know, our job is to proclaim the the wonders of Christ, the grace of Christ, so that along with God's will, you know, we hope that all would come to the saving knowledge of God. So it's sort of this paradox of us excited to to reap the benefits of Christ's sacrifice where we live forever in the new heavens and the new earth with God. But at the same time, God's being gracious by not returning soon because he's giving a chance for the world to repent. On the other hand, too, I think that we as Christians have the priv privilege of knowing that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus for our benefit. And so therefore we reap the benefits of that of Christ's righteousness. So when we stand before God on judgment day, we get to point to Christ and, and we're not on the hot seat. But at the same time, we can't let that lull us into a, into a false sense of our sins are no big deal. And that's also what's happening in this day. You know, God's not going to do anything good or bad. Our sins are no real big deal. And so when we get this description of God's judgment for the Christian, if nothing else, it should remind us of where we would be without Christ. Um, so without recognizing the severity of God's God's anger against sin, it's hard for us to recognize the sweetness of the gospel. I think, you know, one thing that would help, and you've you brought this out already, we can tie a few things together, that with this day of the Lord near and hastening fast, you said that there's a proleptic nature to it, that on the one hand, it is fulfilled in 587 BC when the Babylonian army comes and sacks Jerusalem. And, and yet it's also pointing forward to that last day, that ultimate judgment of the Lord, that great day of the Lord. Uh, there's another day of the Lord that we could put in the middle of those two. And you, you've pointed it out already, the day when these things happen to Christ, where the, right. the wrath of the Lord, you know, the distress, the anguish, the ruin, the devastation, darkness, gloom, all those things that we'll talk about in a moment, right. all of that comes upon Christ in our place. And, and if we think of Good Friday, as a day of the Lord, 
in which all of this happens, not to you and to me and to sinners, but to Christ in the place of sinners. I, I think that helps tie these things together for us as Christians, that in in that day of the Lord, because of what has happened on Good Friday, we can look forward to the final day of the Lord, Judgment Day, because we know that our sins have already been judged in Christ, and we are forgiven. We're innocent. We're holy because of him. And yet at the same time, seeing that day of the Lord and, and what our sins deserved in in Christ, the punishment he received in our place, that also is a great reminder of the severity of our sin. You know, uh, how does the hymn go? Ye who think of sin but lightly, you know, look, look at Christ and see what your sin deserved. And I think seeing that day of the Lord in the middle, this Good Friday day of the Lord, helps us to hold these things in tension. Right, and that's why we see when Christ is crucified a lot of the same imagery we're, that we've heard from other prophets, but that we're also getting ready to talk about in verse fifteen. This this darkness and gloom, and you know, this idea of earthquakes and devastation. You know, we see that connected to Christ's uh, death on the cross. So we see there the day of the Lord being poured out upon you know the Lord Himself. But then that's for our benefit. So Judgment Day essentially has been completed for the one who has faith in Christ at the cross. But then there still is, of course, the return of the Lord. But even St. Paul talks about you know narrowly escaping as through the fire. So as we'll see later, it doesn't mean that the day of the Lord, even for those who have secure uh, faith in Christ, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a pleasant day. Take us into some of the description that Zephaniah gives us of this day. He he repeats it in a very poetic way in verse 15, a day of, of wrath, and then he, he goes for it. Take us into the, that imagery that he gives us. Sure. So he says a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, of ruin and devastation, of darkness and gloom, and clouds and thick darkness. Well, this vision that he's being given from God is not unlike some of the activity that God has already done on earth and other visions that he's given to prophets. You know, Job describes the day of the Lord as a day of anguish and devastation, and we see that in these words too. The prophet Joel describes it also as a time of gloom and darkness. And even in Revelation, it's, it has this description of, of the great day being a, a, having a great earthquake and the sun turning black and, and blood and all these sorts of things. So the wicked are at that time always crying out for the mountains to, to and rocks to crush them so they don't have to face God's judgment. Uh, and that's also from Revelation, of course. So we see here that this day is painful. And for all the people of Israel who are you know waiting for, for God to come and, and be uh, uh, to, to vindicate them, you know God will will have his vengeance, you know, is that our perspective? You know, will we be joyful on the day that our brothers and si or our, our fellow, our fellow human beings who aren't our brothers and sisters, whom we've witnessed to, uh, are are then condemned because they wouldn't turn or they rejected the Lord? You know, it's 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 not a happy day. So we see that locally, Judah will come to ruin. So in terms of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, those things have some immediate temporal consequences. Jerusalem falls, the people will be without a, the home, or at least without the same home, all because of the wrath of God. I mean, sure, it's the Babylonians and, and messed up political issues with the Egyptians and other things, right. but it really points forward to God's judgment of their 
sin. They're turning against him. So this overall imagery is that God's wrath and anger against sin is real and that they should repent. They should turn. If this is in the context of a reform that they're not taking seriously or they're just putting Yahweh on the shelf with their uh, with their other gods, then God, as we learn later in this same the same prophecy, he's jealous. So he's 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 telling them that, no, no, this is not how you should live. Turn to the Lord for forgiveness. Um, and even today, you know, we have that duty to continually return to the Lord for forgiveness, even through our faith. And then we also have that prophetic role to warn others. But there's this interesting parallel, I think, here with the day of the Lord, not only with Christ and that darkness and earthquake that came at his crucifixion, but even way back when God is giving his commandments to Moses on Sinai, the visual's still the same. There's thick darkness. Deut Deuteronomy 4 says, um, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. And here we see this same visual effect. And that's a situation of what? God giving his law to the people. This is a situation of God judging people for their, for their inability and their failure to keep his law. Christ is being crucified on our behalf, even though he kept the law perfectly, because we didn't. And at the end of time, those who have not received or accepted Christ, those who have not sought forgiveness or have rejected the good word, they will be judged according to God's law. So God's law still counts. It's still important. He's still just. Yeah, I mean, that, that recollection of what happens at Mount Sinai, I think, is an important thing. You know, again, thinking about this day of the Lord is a proleptic thing, that there are many days that we might consider a day of the Lord all pointing ultimately to that day that happens on Good Friday and then the, the last day, Judgment Day. But I mean, think of how often, you know, you have darkness or gloom or clouds, ruin, devastation at, at various moments of judgment in the Old Testament. The, the mention of darkness and gloom brings to mind one of the plagues that hit the, the nation of mm. Egypt. And I mean, you could think of, for example, the, the battle between the prophet Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. There's a lot of imagery here that I think fits with that. And and so perhaps the the surprise for the people of Judah with the preaching of Zephaniah and other prophets, when they think of these days of the Lord that they've witnessed, other than maybe that Mount Sinai, and I think that's right, that's a very good connection that you made. These other days, Lord, it's the Lord coming upon the idolaters, upon their enemies. And and here's where that complacency comes in. They've they've seemed to have gotten this idea that, well, we're the people of God. We, we live in Jerusalem. There's the temple right there. And so we're okay. No matter what we do, no matter what idols we put in that temple, we're okay because God's on our side. And and this is an important reminder, as, as you said, you know, God's wrath is real. It, it's not, you know, that that impotency that, that they were describing in yesterday's text. The Lord's not going to do good and he's not going to do ill. He's just kind of there, but he's not going to do anything. The Lord shatters that notion here. And he starts the shattering of it by reminding them, no, my wrath is real and it will come even upon you. You who think you are my people, you have separated yourselves from me and the wrath is real and it is going to come for you. And that's a that's a really big wake-up call for the people in Zephaniah's day. And it should be a, a wake-up call for us in our day as well. Well, absolutely. I think it's interesting that you talk about how God is 
this imagery is around God's judgment of the idolaters, and that's true. We, we're going to hear later about God being jealous. He wants to protect his people. He, he sees them um, having harm done to them or they're engaging in harmful behaviors, and he just doesn't sit back. He loves them. He's jealous for them, so he reaches in to claim them back. And at the same time, though, we have to recognize that complacency. I mean, that's the that's the sin of today to the point where people are, again, forgetting the Lord. But even Christians, you know, oh, well, as long as I b believe that Jesus is the son of God, then then nothing else matters. And then we're reminded that even the demons believe. Right. Yeah. This this matter of complacency is always a danger to our Christian faith. And so the words of Zephaniah, as hard as they may be to hear, are needed today, that we would know that the wrath of the Lord is real. And so, as we will hear, seek refuge in the Lord to repent and go back to him. And we'll take up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking the prophet Zephaniah this morning with Pastor Phil Boo. We'll be right back. Please stick around. How was your day? Fine. Did you learn anything new? No. Anything I should know? No. Is everything okay? Yeah. Sometimes it can be hard to connect with teens. Use Connect With Me activity cards to deepen your conversations. Visit health.mo.gov connect to access these free cards and other resources. A message from the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 7th. We are studying Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 3 with Pastor Phil Boo. He's the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, we're talking about the day of the Lord and the way that the prophet Zephaniah describes it in verse 15 and then into verse 16. It, it strikes me that he describes it six times. You know, he says a day of wrath, a day of distress, and so forth. He does that six times. We talked a little bit yesterday that there's some language in the prophet Zephaniah in this first chapter that sounds like the Lord is decreating it on this day of the Lord. And here there's six mentions of the day. I, I wonder if there's a, a parallel there, perhaps, you know, six days of creation. Now the day of the Lord, six times that, that the Lord 
his you know decreating this judgment the, in verse 16 the the image that's mentioned in that last mention of the day is trumpet blast battle cry kind of moves the prophet forward into the the rest of his his preaching this that we've got today what what else do we see about this day of the lord in verse 16 well a day of trumpet blast you know a trumpet blast is used in many ways even in the old testament you know it would have been the beginning of great festivals and feasts of the lord used to gather people around but of course it's also used in wartime to muster troops and in some ways maybe strike fear into enemies you hear these trumpet blasts and you look out and you see all these troops verse 16 we see that the prophet's describing this day of the lord with imagery that suggests this great battle so closer to home the israelites would soon find themselves literally against strong armies they they'd hear the trumpet blast of the babylonians and no matter how prepared they were they wouldn't be able to withstand it, mostly because the Lord is behind it. The Lord's allowing the Babylonians to conquer them as part of this judgment. So no matter how fortified you think your cities are, uh, no matter how lofty your battlements, when, when the Lord is, is behind it, then there is absolutely no way that you're going to be able to withstand it. And we, we see this, too, looking forward to the future day of the Lord, you know, if the battle of the Lord is against the fortified cities and lofty battlements, you know, what do we think of today? We think that we are so secure. We hide behind our man-made fortresses. We have weaponry and technology. We think about, you know, even Americans think about being the mightiest army or nation on earth. So, so is that going to be able to withstand the Lord? Of course not. Well, that's sort of where they're at. You know, they've so forgotten the Lord. And they have so much self-righteousness and pride in themselves, they probably are deluded to think that even if the Lord should judge them, they'll be safe behind their advanced uh, protectments. And the same goes for us. We often think, well, you know, our wealth and our abilities will protect us from anything. And yet that's not true. When the, when the Lord is, is judging then there's nothing we can do to withstand it. When he exercises his power and judgment over the world, no nation or army or protect protectment can uh, can keep you safe. Yeah, that that battle imagery comes through very clearly in verse 16. A reminder of one of the titles, and I'm not sure that the prophet Zephaniah uses it here, but it's it's common in the prophets where we hear the Lord or Yahweh of hosts, the the Lord of armies, Yahweh of armies, that he's the one that does the fighting and that's the you know this day of the lord so far i mean i guess it it sounds it, it sounds a bit distant you know the day of the lord is going to be really bad until you you get to the, oh wait who's the one who's leading the attack and and that's where verse 17 where it's very plain i will bring distress on mankind this day of the lord is not just some historical political happenstance but this is actually the lord bringing this judgment upon his people which again is maybe not the way that that we're accustomed to thinking and the preaching that we're accustomed to hearing but it it was necessary in zephaniah's day and it's probably necessary for us as well what how does zephaniah make that move how does he turn that corner in verse 17. well it's kind of like jesus flipping over the tables that's not the jesus you hear about very often you know the the jesus who is the righteous judge you know we just think of we want to think of jesus as uh i i call it uh 
you know, church basement movie Jesus. You know, that's an old movie you'd been, <laughs> you'd been shown in the church basement, and he's just always walking around, has a nice 70s perm, and he's just real soft-spoken. And, you know, and in this case, you know, God's not being very nice, well, at least by our human standards. You know, we think, oh, well, God should just look the other way. Doesn't he realize that, that you know, we have a hard time with this? So what's what's fascinating about 17 as he says, I will bring distress on mankind. And I just not very Christian of him, <laughs> but but <laughs> God intends to bring distress on mankind. The darkness and gloom of God's wrath is such that the, the prophet will say, and they shall walk like the blind. Um, so how do blind walk? Well, at least in this context, he's talking about this idea that you you can't make your way. You You really don't see it coming. And at the same time, you're confused. So both judgments, the coming of the localized judgment for Judah and the day of judgment upon all people, it leaves people like they're blind, confused. Well, why? Why would they be confused? The, our Bible uh, in the New Testament, rather, talks about how, how well, the, the, the day of the Lord or the return of Christ is coming like a thief in the night. But then it goes on to say, but you shouldn't be surprised by him coming as a thief in the night. You should be prepared for it. So the reason why they're walking around blind is because of their lack of remorse and, and their lack of repentance. They, they haven't prepared themselves for God's return. They are unconcerned with it at all. So if they're walking around thinking that God won't do good or evil then or ill, then, uh, then naturally— the, the idea that God's actually going to come and, and, and bring judgment upon them is something that, that surprises them. Right, even though they shouldn't be surprised because the prophet is, is bringing this out. The imagery that Zephaniah uses again here is pretty, pretty vivid as he describes what's going to happen yeah. with the blood being poured out, their flesh-like dung. I mean, if you think about, and we've yeah. talked some about this with the exile and the things that actually or not the exile, but the destruction, the siege of Jerusalem, the things that happened. Zephaniah is, is pretty much on point with some of that. Well, right. So, you know, we have, first of all, the walk like blind. I should mention, and I, I, you know, one scholar pointed out as I was, you know, looking into this, that in the case of Josiah's son, Zedekiah, last king of Judah, um, yeah. that he actually was forced to witness the execution of his sons. And then Nebuchadnezzar had his eyes pierced. So there's another sort of local fulfillment of that. Of that specifically, he ended up becoming blind. And and as the end of the of the political entity that is Judah uh, came to uh, came to its con conclusion. Um, now whether that's what's in mind here or not, I, you know, it's hard to say. But interestingly enough, we do see these things taking place in in real life. So these gruesome imageries of of the blood being poured out like dust in their their flesh. The word flesh there is like bowels, the maybe even more specifically the content of their bowels. So what's the idea here? Well, their blood being poured out like dust is 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 a vivid depiction of after this battle, there is is blood mixed with the earth all over. And their bodies are in decay. So the recipient of God's wrath immediately and in the future is one that's a terrible, terrible fate. And so we think, gosh, is, is God just in bringing this distress? We like to judge God based on our, our own 
measure of, of goodness, but both the specific sins of Judah in that day and the unrepentant sinners of, of all time, those are the reasons. In fact, it's because God is righteous and just that he punishes sin. And he does provide a way out. We know we know that because we know the end of the story through Christ. But even here in a few verses, we're going to see that there's there's a glimmer of hope. And then, of course, at the end of the prophecy, uh, he talks about the remnant. But we 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 see here that that the prophet is being um, thorough, a good Lutheran, in that he is <laughs> is proclaiming the law in its fullest severity, because oh. people need to take it. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, the, the full severity of the law comes out very clearly in this first chapter of Zephaniah. And he, he leaves you no way out other other than one. And, and that's where he does, you know, touch on that in chapter two before really, you know, amplifying it into chapter three. But there, there is no way out except for one. And he, he crosses off a few, I mean, he's already crossed off some of your paths already. Your, your fortified cities, your lofty battlements, they're not going to save you. In verse 18, now it's your silver and gold. Now they're not going to be able to save you either. And and of all the idols that we have, money is one of the most common, one that we think provides security. But the prophet Zephaniah is joining his voice with the rest of the authors of Holy Scripture that that won't save you either. Yeah, it's kind of like a almost like a double entendre. You know, they would make they would cover their their literal idols in gold. I'm not sure about silver, but perhaps. But the idea that your gods aren't going to save you. Your idols aren't going to save you. And then, of course, money, literally money is not going to save you. Um, in ancient times, you know, sometimes the a warring opponent would send an emissary to the king and basically say, hey, listen, if you pay me off, if you give us tribute, we'll just go on to the next town or the next city or whatever. And so they would if they had a lot of money and they would just pay them off. Well, you know, that ancient practice isn't going to work here. Your silver and gold. No matter how much you trust in it and rely on it, is not going to work when God comes. No matter how rich you are, your wealth cannot save you. And so it says on the day of the wrath of the Lord, but then it says in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. And he will make of all uh, an end, an end, pardon me, of all the inhabitants of the earth. I kind of butchered that, but the point there is that we get a glimpse that this is more than just talking about the fall of Jerusalem. You know, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So God is jealous. Um, I, I often make this distinction with my kids so they kind of learn the difference. You know, sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm jealous of what so-and-so has, and I remind them that. Actually, what they're talking about is being envious. To be envious mm. is to want what someone else has. To be jealous is to want to keep what you have from others. And so in this case, we clearly see, as I've said before, God's not pleased with his people worshiping other gods. And his jealousy, righteous jealousy, brings out fire, his anger. And so we get this glimpse pointing beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. And pointing beyond the end of Judah as a political power, we see now the prophet speaking about all the earth being consumed by God's fire and God bringing an end to everybody on earth. And then I think this also brings out for me anyway that thief in the night language. It's a full and sudden end. 
those who know it's coming still don't know exactly when it'll be, but they are prepared. And those who have ignored God's word, then they will be completely and utterly surprised. Right. I think that, that even the night language is a helpful connection to make. And, and the way that Jesus speaks you know, in the Gospels about his return is a helpful thing. Because I mean, over and over again, you don't know when, but it's coming soon. So what, what then? Well, watch be prepared. And we know that, you know, that means to have faith, trust in the Lord, to, to look for his coming as a repentant, a faithful Christian. And, and again, Zephaniah here has, has closed all of these doors, all of these ways out that a person might look for in trying to escape this day of the Lord. But now in, as chapter two begins, and I, you know, I do think that this just flows from the previous text, he shows you the one way. I mean, think of how just the narrow door. The, the one door that is open. And it starts with, you know, language, gather together, gather, O shameless nation. Uh, what's, what's the prophet? And there's, there's maybe some, some Hebrew that we can talk about here, Pastor Boo. What's, what's being said here is, as he starts showing the way forward in the midst of all this distress of the day of the Lord? Yeah, we have now, after all that gloom and darkness, we finally have a spot of light from the prophet. And he points to the fact that you know what? This hasn't happened yet. Now, as we're going to find out, he doesn't say that there's a way to avoid this judgment, just like there's no way to avoid the judgment day of the Lord. But he does talk about um, a response to it. And so it says, gather together. Yes, gather. And I've always, to be honest, just read this sort of first level reading from, from the English, and it kind of says, gather together. So I'm thinking, well, he must be calling them to gather around the word of the Lord or gather around true practices of the Lord or either or even gather around the prophet so they can hear what he's about to tell them. And then some people have pointed out, well, maybe it means that they're to gather together with the faithful. So like gathering in the sense of of avoiding the wicked people. So gather together, hide away. After all, Zephaniah's name literally means the Lord hides away or hides. Um, is he telling them to go and and protect themselves from the world? You know, go bar yourself up in your in your in your church, so to speak. Well, as I looked into it, it yeah, it looks like the word could be translated bend yourselves because the root of the word refers to like stooping down to pick up hay or straw or something. Mm. And so if if we have this sort of curving in language, then I, I think the call here is less of an assembly, less of, hey, everybody gather around, and more of them urging them to bow down, to bend over. Um, this is a humble stance. This is, is pointing people toward humility. And I think that connects with what happens next, right? So if we think of this more as be humble or, or bend down, so so be humble. Yes, be humble, oh, shameless nation. And that makes, I think, a lot more sense. Now, again, Hebrew, literally, it means a people or a nation not paled, like not with the color drained from them. So why are why would be people paled? Well, they're paled if they're ashamed. So therefore, you know, oh, shameless nation is a, is a great is a great translation here. It could also mean, as at least one scholar I ran into said, that maybe it just means they're not paled um, in their devotion to the Lord. Um, 
so in that case, they would just, you know, they're, they're, they would be pale because they're longing for the things of God. They're pale because they don't have access to the Lord in the way that they should, and therefore these are, are um, unbelievers. So, so humble yourselves, O unbelievers. Either one, I think, is an apt description of what's going on here. You have unbelievers, self-righteous folks whom the prophet is calling to be humble. Return to the Lord in humility. Mm-hmm. And as we pointed out in verse 2, because there's time. So do this before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And so we see this. It would have been great if he had said it six times because we could have connected earlier, but he doesn't. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he just says it four times, but it's certainly uh, an emphasis here. This before repetitiveness is like, hey, you know, there is still time. There is still time. Uh, there's a sense of urgency, though. Yeah. You know, you need to do it quick. The decree is going to take effect. That is God's law is coming. Um, or you already have it, I should say. The decree is, of course, your judgment for breaking it. Um, humble yourselves before God's judgment decree. Humble yourselves before the day passes away, because God has grace, but it's coming to an end. And and I was all, I always grew up down south, and they always talked about you know, well, you're never promised tomorrow. You're never promised tomorrow. And I think that's what he's saying here. Before the day passes away like chaff. You know, the days, days are quick, and so you're not promised tomorrow. So humble yourselves before then. Humble yourselves before the burning anger of the Lord or the day of anger comes upon you. As he's already described, the day of the Lord is not going to be pleasant for those who've rejected God. There's going to be no more second chances after he returns. So the repentance needs to come before how do we as Christians hold on to that urgency today? I mean, I think for us particularly, when we think of the day of the Lord that is yet to come and our Lord's return, it, it's been, what, 2,000 plus years now, and, and that doesn't seem terribly urgent. So how do we hold on to that urgency? Because we know it's still there. How do we hold on to it? Right. So the Lord's not slow in coming as we count slowness, and I think that's something that we have to always remember, is that with God being outside of time and space, two and a half millennia is nothing to him. It's everything to us. And we also recognize that the Lord's slowness in coming is about that, again, that grace. We, But you know what? We're also not promised another day. So the end of our lives, the day where we stand before the Lord in terms of uh, at least being in the interim state as we await the resurrection, could literally be tomorrow, could be this afternoon. So we don't know. So that's why whether it's the Lord returning at the end or whether our own lives, earthly lives, coming to an end and us transitioning into our our spiritual lives with God, um, we don't know when that's going to happen. So that's why we stay alert, uh, like the uh, apostles with it, with Jesus as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have to stay awake, and we continue to to do that. But it's not just for ourselves. We also do it for others. So yes, we're called to be humble for God, before God, but we're also called to support one another and to fulfill that prophetic role of calling the world to join us. 
and and think how how much we soften the reality of God's wrath. You know, the prophet probably would have gotten a lot less trouble from his contemporaries, but he also wouldn't have been as effective if he would have sugarcoated the message. Now, I'm not saying that we should be fire and hell, you know, hail and brimstone preachers, but at the same time, how often do we just sort of gloss over the fact that God is just and righteous and there is a day of wrath coming, that hell is real and people will really go there? And so I think that as Christians, we have that double duty, both, of course, with our own faith, but also that horizontal righteousness that, that, that we owe to our neighbor, the good works that God has given us to do. The prophet gets pretty concrete in his response that he gives to the people then in verse 3. You know, he says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility, and then perhaps you might be hidden. What? How does the prophet, you know, again, point that way forward here in this last verse that we have today? Right. So, yeah, he calls those who are hum humble and those who follow God's law to uh, do these very practical things. Seek the Lord. That is avoid the false gods and idols the things that got all everyone in trouble in the first place seek the lord only seek righteousness which points to how they treat others in the land you know unlike that shameless and and wicked behavior that's been going on instead treat each other righteously there's sort of a a vertical and horizontal righteousness going on here you know look to your relationship with the lord vertically but don't forget your relationship with one another because our faith is lived out in these good works for our neighbor and then and then finally seek humility which is ties everything in together cast off this self-righteousness and pride uh, we see this in our world today we see people abandoning these things but we also see this being fulfilled in Jesus. He sought the Lord, he was righteous, and he was certainly humble in living that perfect life and yet went to the cross in our place. So Jesus lived them out perfectly. But then even here, and I just think this is kind of fascinating, Zephaniah doesn't offer any guarantees. He says, perhaps you may be hidden, again, maybe drawing on his own name of the Lord hides, but perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So he isn't saying that the faithful aren't saved, but he does kind of remind us that there's, you know, there's life more than this life. So it doesn't say that you aren't secure in the Lord. He's just pointing out that even the faithful may experience the negative aspects of God's judgment, in particular against Judah. In this immediate judgment, when when they're going to be sieged, there are going to be believers, righteous people, people who haven't turned away from the Lord, who are also going to be taken into exile or whose homes are going to be turned upside down. So they might not avoid the suffering that comes from the Babylonians. And just in our day, we'll still suffer the consequences of sin, this side of Christ's return. So ultimately, our hope comes from Jesus Christ who took upon himself the fullness of God's wrath, all this stuff that, that Zephaniah has been talking about, Jesus took for us so that no matter what we experience, either in this life, whether it be the result of God's judgment or the result of our sins or both, or even in the last days, as things get progressively worse, as we're promised in Revelation, that God is going to preserve that remnant. It doesn't mean things are always going to be perfect, but it does mean that we have a future home with God. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, that, that perhaps language, I think, is per, it perhaps is surprising to us. And yet I, I think it, it points to a, an important reality in this humility that Zephaniah is, is proclaiming here, that when we come to the Lord in repentance, we don't do so presuming that we know what he's got in mind, that we do so entirely throwing ourselves upon his mercy. And however that mercy works itself out for us, you know, whatever we might experience in this life, we trust that that mercy will be good and right for us. And I think that's where the, the perhaps comes in, that it's not, and we're not presuming upon God, but completely trusting whatever he's got in mind for us. Pastor Boo, it's just about 30 seconds. Help us to wrap this text up this morning. Well, ultimately, you know, as scary as this is, it points forward to the reality that God is just. And if God wasn't just, if he didn't care about his people, either in that day or us today, he wouldn't have bothered sending the prophet. Yeah. He wouldn't have bothered telling them in advance about what, how severe his wrath is. So the mere fact that we get an insight into the jealous nature of God is is our hope so we look to christ who's who's fulfilled all of those things for us pastor phil boo is pastor at saint john lutheran church in laverne minnesota helping us today with zephaniah 1 verse 14 through chapter 2 verse 3 pastor boo thanks for being our guest today thank you so much for having me i'm your host here on sharper iron pastor timothy apple of grace lutheran church in smithville texas if you have any questions, send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or use the app to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.